Uh, what a joy it is to be with you all this weekend. Um, we've saw some amazing things at the Remind Conference. I want to thank Pastor Joe, Pastor Todd, uh, Sue for all the attention to detail that she had, uh, what happened, um, Stacy and Jean for actually letting us borrow their car uh, during this weekend. Um, so many things that were just amazingly done. Your volunteer staff and the technical folks here are really honestly second to none. We've done a number of these conferences and we've done conferences all over the world. And what was done here through your, your church and through your, the service and the heart of service of this church was second to no one in the world that I've ever been in with. So thank you so much. It makes the generosity and the partnership through the Micah 6 8 uh, that you guys do all the more special because it's not just you know, writing the numbers down, it's actually using your hands to do something. I'm just so blessed by it. I can't say enough on behalf of me and Robbie and the entire team. Um, I want to share with you the, tonight, uh, tonight, oh my goodness, uh, it is still the day, right? <laughs> um, this is how it happens when you do that. Tomorrow I will, I'm off to Peru, actually. As soon as I leave here, I go home, I drive home, three hours to Detroit, spend some time with family, and then tomorrow I head off to Peru to speak with, in some, um, some political settings, actually. So uh, do pray for us, and pray that I know what day it is tomorrow, too. Um, but I want to share with you my story about my journey from Islam to Christ. Um, uh, some of you may know that I was a Muslim before I became a Christian. For most of my life, I was a Muslim. And I don't, mean, I don't say that accidentally. It's not Islam to Christianity. It's Islam to Christ. Specifically is that from a set of rules and regulations to a relationship with God in, through His Son. And that's really what I ended up coming to. Now, I'm doing that, uh, though, wait, 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 my book, Saving Truth, just came out. And it's, I think it's available in the hallways. Um, uh, in that book, Saving Truth, what I'm talking about is how we are now immersed in a culture that is called a post-truth culture. Oxford English Dictionary actually named our culture a post-truth culture. We're not post-modern. We don't reject truth. We now accept that truth exists. We just don't care. And so our preferences matter more. We know truth exists, but our preferences are more important. My story, you're going to hear some of that actually. Even though I believed in truth, I believed Islam was the truth, at the point when truth began to confront me, my preferences were mattering more. So in the book, I try to point out how can we actually reach a culture in all spectra, whether it's science and faith or freedom issues or whatever, or preferences and any kind of thing, how can we reach a culture that doesn't want to embrace truth? How do we show them the value of truth once again? And you'll hear some of that in my story. And that reminds me of another story I've heard plenty of times. It's a, it's, it's a lawyer joke. I'm going to tell a lawyer joke, but I can do that because I'm actually a lawyer. Um, so you can't do that if you're not a lawyer. Sorry, you can't. Uh, there's actually a law about that. No, I'm kidding. There's no law about that. Um, it's the story of a guy. He's the quintessential. He's like the stereotype of a lawyer you think of. He will lie, cheat, steal to do whatever it takes to win, and he's very good at it, so he ends up winning a lot of cases, and he ends up amassing quite a bit of money, and buys a huge plot of land he loves to walk through, uh, especially in the autumn days. So he's walking through his land one autumn day, and the leaves are falling from the trees, and the streams are streaming, and the squirrels are you know, being squirrely. And he's walking through, and he sees a bear. And the bear turns and looks at him, and it strips its teeth, and it snarls at him, and he knows what that means. So he starts to run as fast as he possibly can in the other direction. And the bear runs and runs and runs and catches up to him, knocks him over. As it raises its huge paw to kill him, he says, oh, my God. And the bear stops 
and the leaves stop mid-fall, and the streams stop streaming, and the squirrels stop being squirrely, and a light comes down from heaven, and there is a booming voice, and it says, you have denied truth your whole life, and you have served yourself and not others. Why should I save you? And the lawyer, being a good lawyer, finds a loophole. He says, you know, it would be hypocritical if I became a Christian now. Could you make the bear a Christian? And God says, very well. And the light goes back up, and the leaves fall, and the squirrels get squirrely, and the streams stream, and the bear puts his paws together and says, thank you, Father, for this food I'm going to receive. <laughs> you can't outlawyer God. When you are confronted with the truth, sometimes the truth hurts. It's always still true, but sometimes it's painful. My story is about that. I think this post-truth culture we're engaged in is about that. Sometimes the truth hurts, not because the truth is actually injurious, it doesn't actually injure you, but the truth itself can hurt because it goes against what we wish was true or what our preferences might be. See, I was raised as what's called a Shia Muslim. There are two kinds of Muslims. There's the Sunni, which is the majority, and then the Shia, which is the minority. But it's a large minority. So it's about, depending on who you ask, it's between 15 and 25% of Muslims are Shia. Um, and so it's a large part, and the, the, the beliefs are largely the same together, and their practices are largely the same. There are some minor differences, but basically it's the same thing. Um, well, I was serious about it. I thought it was true, and if it was true, then people should believe it, uh, because people should believe true things and not false things. And I would have none of this relativism about, if it's true for you, that's great, it's true for you. Keep your truth to yourself. My truth is my truth. Even if they're contradictory, it's okay. We both have this idea of truth. Well, I didn't want to have any of that nonsense. I thought true is true no matter who believes it, and false is false no matter who believes it too. So I wanted to actually impart Islam, which I thought was true, to people. So I would engage in these conversations with people. From a young age, I would do this actually. Um, uh, middle school, a little bit. High school, a lot more. And then in college, a lot more, where I would engage in conversations with people. I wasn't trying to convince them they were wrong by standing on the street corner and thumping my Quran at them. I would engage in conversations with people that I met. And I was pretty good at this, actually. And I began to ask them a series of questions. I'd ask them a question like this. Why are you a Christian? It's a great question every Christian should ask themselves every day. What are the good reasons to be a Christian? Now, it wasn't just Christians I was going after. Um, I was sort of an equal opportunity, faith knocker, outer, upper. Um, it wasn't just Christians. It was atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, whoever I happened to know. But in the suburb I grew up in, it was largely nominal Christians. We had some Indians that I knew who were either Muslim or Hindu. There were a few Arabs who were there too. And so there was, you know, there were some sprinkling of olive oil in the sea of rice around me. Um, but largely it was a white neighborhood. So I had a lot of Christians who were low-hanging fruit. So I would pick on them more often than anybody else because they were around. So I would engage and I would ask them this question, why are you a Christian? And the answers I got back were disappointing. They'd say things like, um... I'm a Presbyterian, I think, because we go to the Presbyterian church, I believe it is, on Christmas and Easter. So I'm a Presbyterian? I'm like, was that a question or was that an answer? I'm not even sure you know. And so I'd say, well, my goodness, if you don't know, why should I be what you are? They're like, I, I don't know. I'd say, are you telling me that you trust your eternal soul to a religion, to a worldview that someone else thought through? Did you think it through at all? And the answer was typically no. And then I'd say, you're telling me that you trust your soul to something you haven't given any thought through. 
And if that's the case, tradition does not save you, my friend. Let me tell you why your tradition is wrong. And I would launch into my attacks. Now, as a Muslim, you know, I believe this, 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 this uh, idea. Now, you've heard this phrase, right? Allahu Akbar. You've heard that? And you're a little nervous because the Arabs said it in the crowd now. Um, you've heard this phrase, though, right? And the reason why it's you know, funny that it's nervous is because you hear this on the news media all the time. Allahu Akbar, and then something blows up. Um, this phrase literally means God is bigger, but the connotation is God is greater. So for the Muslim, God's greatness is the central idea of all of Islam. Now, here's the important thing. It is not a terrorist chant. It is a, a, a statement of Islamic faith. Most Muslims are not sitting behind the staircase, twisting their mustaches, thinking of how to blow the place up. They're not doing that. Most of them just want to find the woman of their dreams or find the guy of their dreams, have kids with that person, have those kids have kids, and then die. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what they, most of them want. So when they say Allahu Akbar, what they really are saying is, God is great in all avenues of my life. So if they get bad news, a bad medical report, they'll say Allahu Akbar, God is great. God is greater than my circumstances. Or they'll say, if they get a blessing, they'll say God is great. Look how wonderful he's blessed me, Allahu Akbar. God's greatness is the central idea behind all of Islam. And I, as a Muslim in specific, I, as a Muslim, wanted to express God's greatness. And I stood against Christianity because I thought it insulted God's greatness. The ideas of the Trinity and the Incarnation and the cross were all insults to God's, great, God's greatness. So when Christians would tell me they believed because of tradition, I would launch into my attacks and I would say, you have no reason to believe in a God who is great. I hear you sing this hymn, How Great Thou Art. You ought to change it to How Great Thou Aren't, because your God is not great. And I would give my, my reasons why. I'd say that Bible you guys believe in. And by the way, Muslims, I don't know if this might surprise you to know this, Muslims actually believe that parts of the Bible were once revealed by God. The Torah or the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the Zabur or the Psalms of David, and the Injil, or the Gospel of Jesus, were all revelations that came from God, according to Islam, but they became corrupted over time to include blasphemous lies, according to Islam, of the Trinity, Incarnation, and Cross, and Islam came through the revelation of the Quran in the seventh century in Arabia and fixed all of that. So you see the sequence? Bible, corruption, Quran, okay? So I would attack the Bible and say how it's been changed, and I would give all my arguments and my reasons. Then I would attack the Trinity, and I would say, explain this to me. How is God three and God one at the same time? And if God the Father needs help from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, how is God the Father God? Because God shouldn't need any help. If he needs help, he's not great, and God the Father therefore can't be great. And Christians were like, ah, uh, I don't know. And they said, this, this God you're talking about, who is the greatest possible being, who could create a universe that's billions of light years across, and then also create infinitesimal microscopic subatomic particles. This is the same God you say was trapped in the body of a human, and that body sweated, needed to eat, bled, and then eventually died at the hands of the very sinners he created, and you're telling me God is great. That's what I would say, and largely nothing, except for a few annoying people who knew what they were talking about. Now, I found them annoying, not because they had like jerky mannerisms, although <laughs> there were a couple of those too, um, but mostly because here's the thing. I don't like to quarrel. I don't like to argue uh, in a quarrelsome way, but I do like to argue in a, in a debating way. I like to get into the issues. 
I like that. I've always liked that. And I'm also extremely competitive, so I like to win my debates. And if these people would just dot, roll over and die, I would have been happier. I'm like, oh, great, you lost the debate. Fantastic. You don't know what you're talking about. But these people wouldn't do that, so they annoyed me. Um, so I took it upon myself to actually read and start to study Christianity to find the holes in it that I could poke. So I could say, okay, this is false, and here's why I'm going to show you it's wrong. So I began to take all these undergraduate courses in my undergraduate work on comparative religion. And I had a professor of New Testament who, um, I think he was Swedish, and the reason I think that is because he sounded like the chef from the Muppets. Um, <laughs> but he uh, gave me some of the conservative positions on Christianity, but also some of the liberal stuff. And I used the liberal stuff against Christians that I would talk to. And so when I was in my undergraduate days at the University of Michigan, calm down. It's okay. I actually am a Christian. Um, uh, these guys were going door to door at the apartment complexes. These two Baptist guys were going door to door at the apartment complexes. And, you know, you, Ann Arbor is like Berkeley, California, but cold. It's just liberal and doesn't like anything's conservative and Christian. So these guys didn't get a whole lot of responses. But they came to my door, and I was like, You guys deliver? This is awesome. So they came to our door, opened it up, and I made these two guys. By the way, one guy was this older guy who was stone-balled, pencil-thin. The other guy was short, stocky, and had hair coming out of everywhere. Um, I called them my walking number 10. Um, that's what they were like. Well, they walked into, the, uh, into our apartment, and I made these guys extremely uncomfortable for a long time, like hours that day. But they kept coming back, like Thursday after Thursday. If I didn't have classes or an exam or whatever, they kept coming back all the time to our apartment. And sometimes when I gave them a challenge they couldn't answer, they gave me one of the best answers you can give somebody. I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And they did. They got back to me. They would come back and they'd say, okay, we thought about your question. Here's a couple of things we found in terms of answers. What do you think of this? And we would start the whole thing over again. These two guys loved me. They even beat with their names. These two guys loved me. They wanted me to go to heaven. They weren't looking to win an argument with me. They were looking to win my soul. I actually cared about them very much too. I wanted them to go to God's paradise. I wanted them to become a Muslim. So we had this wonderful back and forth, and it was heated, not in terms of our like, emotions, but in terms of our you know, intellectual rigor. Um, but they were like the Terminator man. You shoot them, and they'd come lumbering back up at you again. And you're like, well, you stayed down already. So they wouldn't. So I wanted to find a contradiction in the Bible. I wanted to find a foundational contradiction, something really important. I could say, one gospel says this about the resurrection. This gospel says the opposite about the resurrection. How do you reconcile that, guys, and see if they would stay down for the count? So I'm walking down the street in, at, uh, on, on the campus, and there's these Gideons who are handing out Bibles. And I go over to them, and I say, hey, can I have one of those? And I, he gave me one, and I tried to convert the Gideon to Islam, but it didn't work. Um, but I took this little Bible back with me, a Bible, by the way, I still have. So if you're a Gideon, thank you. I go back to my apartment. I open up this little, little Bible. I begin to read it. And a passage of Scripture struck me. It struck me out of the blue, like, like really hard. I read Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and following. It's about John the Baptist who's, who's, who's talking to those who come to him. And he says, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? He's talking about God's judgment, of course. And he says a few verses later, and do not begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. He can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. 
You know what he's saying there? If you're trying to flee God's wrath and think that, that, that tradition will save you, you're wrong because God can make one just like you out of a rock. Tradition does not save. Truth saves. You know who'd been saying the same thing? Me. That's what I was saying. I talked to Christians and I would say to Christians, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. John the Baptist was agreeing with me. He'd say, why are you what you are? Tradition, not good enough. You know, all those times I'd ask Christians, why are you a Christian? And they would say tradition, and I'd say not good enough. None of them ever had the chance to really ask me, why are you a Muslim? I would have given them some evidences and some reasons why I was a Muslim, and I would have probably felt proud of myself in doing so. But I think if someone had asked me in a pointed way, I would have had to have admitted to myself it was tradition. I had to be. That was how I was raised. That's who I am. I liked being a Muslim. It was my identity. It was who I was wrapped up in being. It was John the Baptist's words that got me to ask the question introspectively in a real and concerted way to ask why I am what I think I am. And Scripture has the power to do that. Here I am, a skeptic, not wanting to believe a word of this book, thinking about all the flaws that are in it, yet is the power of the Scriptures. Isn't this poetic? Think about the poetry here. The Scriptures that I thought were corrupted and unreliable were the very ones that through the power of the Holy Spirit, 20 centuries in the making, allow me to have that book in my hands in my ratty little apartment at University of Michigan and read those words so that I could ask myself, am I really being objective or am I simply giving in to my biases? Do I swallow every criticism of Christianity without critically thinking about it? Or and do I believe every evidence in favor of Islam without thinking about it? And the answer was yes, I did that. It was the Bible that got me to think, I'm going to be as objective as possible and put every worldview to the test. Fully confident Islam would win, but at least I was beginning on that search. And it was the words of Scripture that got me there. Here's what I want to say to you about this. We had a conference with some of the best speakers in the world here. If you've ever heard Ravi speak for five minutes, you know what I'm talking about. As eloquent as he is, as eloquent as anybody else on our team might be, everyone on our team will tell you this, none of us speaks as powerfully as Scripture itself does. You can have all the arguments in the world in favor of why you're a Christian, but if you close that Bible, you will never be quite as convincing. If a skeptic like me can start to be changed by the words of the Scriptures, then you must live by this edict. Do not speak with lofty arguments and a closed Bible. That's the word that actually matters. So with this new shift in my mindset that I was going to start being as objective as possible, I began to see things a little differently. And that's when everything that I had believed about Islam in relation to Christianity, Christianity itself and the Bible, all that stuff had come like crashing down. I had suddenly gotten challenged out of nowhere, very surprisingly. You see, the challenger wasn't, but it wasn't a Christian who challenged me. It wasn't a Muslim who challenged me. It wasn't even a person who challenged me. It was the Quran the holy book of the Muslims that challenged my beliefs about the Bible and all these things. See, Islam teaches that the Bible was once God's word but became corrupted, and the Quran came to fix that. But does the Quran teach that? Islam teaches it, but the Quran? I don't know, and here's why. Because with this new shift in my mind, I had read some verses of the Quran that I had read before, and they suddenly seemed different to me. Chapter 5, verses 46 and 47 of the Quran talk about the scriptures and the message of Jesus and how they were actually preserved. 
In fact, the Quran says in Arabic, it says, It literally says in the Arabic, the word yakum is a present tense imperative command. It's saying people of the gospel or Christians judge by what God has revealed therein or judge by what God has revealed in the gospel. And if you don't, you're evil. How about that? Or you're among the rebellious or the evil do, uh, evildoers. How about that? Think about that. If the Quran is telling Christians you must judge by the gospel, but that gospel is corrupted, then why would it call you evil for judging by it? See, I had learned all my life that the gospel was corrupted and the Quran came to fix it, but the Quran wasn't allowing for that. It wasn't saying it was corrupted. It was saying you have to judge by it. You go in that same chapter, chapter 5 of the Quran, verse 68, and you see another, uh, another verse where it says, people of the book, which is a euphemism for Christians and Jews. It says, lestum ala shay'an hatta yuqimu. So that, that, that phrase literally means you are on nothing until you observe, or more probably uh, substantially translated is you have no foundation until you observe, again, present tense, the gospel, the Torah, and all the revelations that have come to you from your Lord. How could they possibly rely for a foundation? How could Christians and Jews possibly rely on the gospel and the Torah as the foundation of faith if those things were horribly corrupted? Do you see the problem? The Quran is saying that the Bible is revelation from God. That is reliable. Yet I've been told my whole life that it's not reliable. And here's why. Because the Quran and the Bible contradict each other. And so one of them can't, has to be wrong. You know why that, that came up? See, Arabs didn't have, the, the early Muslims didn't have Arabic Bibles in, in, the, in the peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula. They had stories and they had other translations of it, but they didn't actually have it in Arabic, so they didn't actually know if the Bible and the Quran matched up. They assumed they matched up. But when they finally got it in Arabic, they realized, oh my goodness, these two things don't match up. These are things are contradictory. The Bible affirms the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, and the, the cross and resurrection. Islam denies all those things. So the Muslims said, look, if this one contradicts our book, our book can't be corrupted. It's got to be that one that's the, that got the, the problems in it. So they invented this idea. But the Quran itself doesn't allow for that. And in my, one of my books, I go into that specifically. But this is what Al Gore would call an inconvenient truth. Because... If the Quran is saying the Bible is right and the Bible contradicts the, the Quran, then the Quran's in trouble because it said that the Bible is right. But if the Quran says the Bible is right and the, the Bible is wrong, the Quran is still wrong because it said the Bible was right. <laughs> so now you've got a problem, don't you? Well, having a lawyer's mindset, wasn't quite a lawyer at this point in time, but having a lawyer's mindset, I decided to say maybe I can find a loophole here. Maybe the Bible wasn't corrupted to include these ideas of the Trinity, Incarnation, and Cross before the Quran came. Maybe it was changed after the Quran, and the Quran was revealed in the seventh century. So I began to look at the manuscript evidence, and I don't have time to go into all the evidence for it. Suffice to say this, we have thousands of great and early manuscripts, uh, copies of both the Old and the New Testament that actually verified that what they wrote then is what we have now. So that loophole was foreclosed to me. But really what got me thinking more about the Bible's validity than anything else, including the historical evidence, was this. 
Remember what I told you about God's greatness? For me, it was Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest possible being. That's the most important thing. That was important to me, and then I came across a dilemma that I began to ruminate on myself. It was this. If God is truly great, the greatest possible being, he would have at least two qualities. One of those qualities would be he would be all-powerful. He would also be trustworthy. If he wasn't all-powerful, then he'd be like Zeus or, you know, uh, Artemis or Ares. He would be unworthy of your belief. Yet, so he's got to be all-powerful. He's also got to be trustworthy because if God can lie to you, well, then how would you ever know that? Right? If he could lie to you, he could pull the wool over your eyes and you'll never know. He's got to be trustworthy enough to put your faith in. Otherwise, he's not great. He's a petty whatever. So he's got to be all-powerful and trustworthy. Here's the problem. If the Bible was once God's word, or at least certain parts of the Bible were once God's word, and those words became changed to include blasphemous lies that send you to hell, then here's the problem. Either God couldn't prevent the corruption, or he wouldn't prevent the corruption. There is no third option. If he couldn't prevent the corruption, then he's not all-powerful. And if he's not all-powerful, then he's not great. If he could have but chose not to prevent the corruption, then he's not trustworthy because this is the only way you know anything about him is his revelation. And if he lets his revelation go into disrepair such that you believe blasphemous lies that send you into hell, it's his fault. And why would you believe the Quran is preserved? So if God couldn't prevent the corruption, he's not all-powerful, he's not great. If he wouldn't prevent the corruption, he's not trustworthy, he's not great. But every Muslim believes that God is great. So a Muslim has to believe that God could, God would, and history shows God did preserve the Bible. And that's what I'm living with now, right? I'm living with this inconvenient truth even more so. Because now I'm starting to get the idea here that to be intellectually honest, I actually have to give my allegiance to what this Bible says. But there's plenty to lose. There's plenty to lose, whether it's family, whether it's culture, whether it's identity. And that was a big part for me. Like I told you before, I liked being a Muslim. I didn't want to not be a Muslim. I was proud of it. I loved it. But the Bible says, take up our cross daily. But Jesus also says, he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. I was not prepared to lose anything for his sake, let alone my life. And I didn't mean my life like physical, I would die. I mean my identity. Because that's a sort of a suicide too, isn't it? When you lose who you are, we think of it that way, which is why we're so reticent, why we're so hesitant to actually give our allegiance to Christ, because he says you are to die to yourself. I'm not going to stand on this cliff and then jump off and magically think that something's going to come back up. That requires too much faith, and I didn't have enough faith at that point to have that kind of a conversation or to have that kind of an action or commitment. So what did I do? I do what a good coward does. I syncretized two contrary faiths. I tried my hardest to make this one and this one say the same thing. And they don't, but I tried my hardest. So for example, the Bible says Jesus, when, that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Seems like a pretty unequivocal statement to say that he and the Father are actually one. They, have the share, they share the same nature. Jesus is God. But the Quran says that unbelievers are those who say God is the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. So if that's the case, the Quran says you are an unbeliever, what do I do with these two statements? Well, you play with the words a little bit. You, sort of give in to your preferences. It's a post-truth world after all. And so what I do is I say, well, Jesus, when he says, I and the Father are one, what he really means is we're one and the same in our goals, in our mission, in our message. Not one in terms of our nature, but one in terms of our message. See what I did there? I played with his words and I twisted them to fit my preferences. But the Quran says, 
that Jesus wasn't crucified. In the fourth chapter, 157th verse, it says that they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it looked like it to them. Well, you can't read the Gospels without a, without a crucifixion. That's the whole point. You can't read the Gospels without a resurrection. That's the whole point. So what do you do with these two now? Well, I find these words. It says, they did not kill him, nor crucify him. Then you read Isaiah, and you read the Old Testament, and you see, ah, it wasn't the Jews who killed him. It was God who did it. God somehow orchestrated this. So when the Quran said they didn't kill him, it's because they didn't do it. It was God who did it. They thought they did it. See, I got out of it. A little lawyer trick. But after a while, you can grow weary of these kind of things. You really do when you're rationalizing your way around faith. I'm playing with the words here, not even respecting what the Quran says anymore in that sense, playing with the words here, not really respecting what the Bible says. I'm just giving in to my own preferences. You ever read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? We think that the, that, the, that the monster is called Frankenstein. The monster has no name. The doctor is Frankenstein. The monster has no name. And what does Dr. Frankenstein do? He takes dead things, sews them together, runs a current through it, and thinks he's created life but the monster has no identity of its own, and so it hates itself, and it hates everyone else who does have an identity, and murder follows soon after. Death follows. I was Dr. Frankenstein. I was taking dead things, this workspace system and liberal Christianity, sewing them together, thinking that I can create something that's new and beautiful and lovely, when in reality, I had a Frankenstein monster of a faith that would eventually result in death. I began to see this, and it was bothering and bothering me. But then some friends invited me to church, and I said yes. They say yes sometimes. You should do it. Follow Sands Cholera's example. Invite everybody you know to church, and they all say, and someone's going to say yes eventually. That's what I did. I said yes. Some friends, one of whom I'm married to now, invited me to church, and they, they came early in the morning. It was a day just like today. Gorgeous summer sunny Sunday. So I say that three times fast. I did that um, that morning. I woke up super early in the morning. Now, I had my Bible and my Quran, and they were color-coded in sticky tabs about where they disagreed theologically and historically. And I wanted one of these things. I wanted to remove one of those tabs that morning to make sure that one of them, at least one thing before I went to this church, one of those things could agree so I could satisfy myself that I wasn't being intellectually dishonest. And I couldn't do it that morning, and it bothered me. I got in the car. I tried to weasel out of going to church. They said, hey, you know, we're already dressed up. Why don't we go? I said, fine, we'll go. And I went. You ever have that thing in that church service when the pastor's talking to you? Like you. He's got you. He broke into your email account. He read your Facebook post. I don't know what he did, but somehow he's got your number. And it's convicting because you are uncomfortable at first, and then the Spirit starts to give that unction where you actually go to change your life, and Monday is going to be a very different day. That happens to us, and it's one of those invigorating things. Well, that happened to me that sunny Sunday, but I wasn't happy about it at all. Not at all. I remember everything about that service. I remember the song that was playing when I walked in. I remember the song that was playing. And then I remember that sermon. And this is what he said at the end of the sermon. This is what he said. He says, God has been leaning on the door of your life for your whole life, but you've been leaning back. And if you would just stop leaning back, the door will open and he will flood every room in the house and he will clean it. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. Is that you? And I knew it was me. Can I pause and ask a question? Is that you? 
It's not just a story I'm telling you, friends. I'm asking you the question. Is that you? I knew it was me. Maybe like you. I was uncomfortable, annoyed, and angry. So we walk out of that church service. We go through the parking lot. Whoa. And my two friends were ahead of me now. And my wife, which wasn't my wife at the time, we were just friends, standing next to me. And I begin to feel this weight actually press on my back and on my shoulders and hunch me over. I start doing this, trying to keep from falling over, actually. I close my eyes and I see something, maybe a vision, maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but the image I got in my head was of these two enormous building-sized books that were crushing me, and I was trying to hold them up like Atlas holding up the world. And I was crying out, I can't do it, I can't do it, which is totally embarrassing because although I'm Middle Eastern and I'm fiery and I have a lot of hand-waving, I'm not going to get like all emotional in a parking lot and cry in front of a woman, but I did, which is bothering me, but there you have it. Now I'm crying, she's crying because she's thinking, he's enormous, if he falls over, what's going to happen? Well, this isn't the day that I became a Christian, it's not. What did happen that day was that I realized I had built this intellectually dishonest fence that I was sitting on, not willing to make a consequential decision one way or the other. And it wasn't one of these nice wood fences you can kind of lean against and with the hay in your mouth and kind of enjoy that. No one does that anymore, but um, you know, it wasn't one of those kind of fences. It was the chain link variety, you know, with the orange, with the triangle points on top. So no matter how you sit, it's not comfortable. I was shifting myself and I wasn't liking it anymore, so I I grew to hate that fence, and I realized that very day, I'm going to tear this fence apart, link by link if I have to. So I decided I was going to graduate law school, pass the bar exam, and I was going to have months between then and when I started my first job at a law firm, could live off off my signing bonus. All my friends were either in school or in college anyway, so I made it my job like eight hours a day to study Islam, Christianity, and every other ism and schism and whatever else I could find out that was out there and see what the evidence was. And I sat down at the desk of my parents' home, and I was there with this evidence for Christianity on the left side of my, sorry, for Islam on the left side of my desk. I mean, piled as high as my eye on this thing. And then on the right side was all the evidence for, for Christianity. Again, piled as high as my eye. And then playing on the computer behind me uh, over the internet was a debate between a Christian and a Muslim on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this was also playing in the days of the dial-up days on the internet. You know, when the internet got mad at you for joining? When it would go, remember that? A lot of you are too young to know that, but the internet actually got angry at you when you joined. Um, and so a two-minute two video takes three hours to buffer. Um, well, this particular video was a debate. So I was surrounded by the evidence, literally surrounded by it, and I had intellectually assented in my mind that the Bible was, in fact, transmitted faithfully down through the centuries so that I can believe what it says. And in those words, Jesus claims to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world by paying a debt, by dying on a cross, that you and I deserve to die and pay, and he pays it for us. And then he was proven right by the historical, verifiable resurrection of Jesus. All of that was in my head as knowledge that I assented to. None of it did I embrace. Because belief involves assent and embrace. I was just at the assent level. I just agreed that it had happened. And the reason was revealed to me very shortly after that. I remember sitting at that desk and I was praying to God after that debate was over. Why, God, why can't I embrace it as true? Why do I know it's true but not embracing it as true? Why, why? 
And then my dad walked by, and he looked at me. Give me that dad smile. That's why. How do you reach into his chest and pull it out, out his heart and say, here, Dad, look? How do you do that? Or to anybody else I, was, I loved in my family, least of all myself. See, it wasn't that I couldn't believe, it was that I wouldn't believe. It took me nine years to become a Christian. And you know why? Not because the answers were hard to find. I found those in a couple of years. The answers aren't hard to find. They are hard to accept. So over the course of the weeks and months, I found myself reading the Bible not to find out if it's true, but to find out what is the truth I can grab out of it for my own life and to see this remarkable life of Jesus. And that's when I read the words that changed everything for me, that really got me to the point where I said, this is worth believing no matter what. As a Muslim, I wanted to believe that God is the greatest possible being. There can be no being greater than God. But if he's the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way. That just stands to reason. Greatest possible being, greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way. What is the greatest possible way to express love? What is it? You can give someone a nice gift. You can send them a nice note. And you can encourage someone, or you can try to win that sweetheart by being, you know, her Romeo, and she can be your Juliet that ends poorly, so don't go too far. Um, but you can do that. But even in our selflessness, there's a bit of selfishness, because we're talking about us. We want to be Mr. Romance or, you know, the queen of the day, or whatever it might be, I don't know. But then we get married, and we recognize that marriage is about something more than just nice words and gifts. Then we have kids, we have siblings, we have friendships, and we recognize something, true love, Foundational love, the greatest possible expression of love happens when someone else does something for you that hurts them. Self-sacrifice is the greatest expression of love we know of. And if God is great, he ought to love at least as great as we do. But here's the kicker. God is not great. God is the greatest. He is greater than you and I. So he would sacrifice bigger than you and me. We sacrifice for those who love us back, maybe occasionally for a stranger, but we don't sacrifice for those who hate us. That's not the first thought you think of. Then I read those words right there in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God demonstrates his love, his boundless love, his greater love, his perfect love, his selfless love, and that while we were sinners, enemies of God, not those who love him, but those who hate him, Christ died for us. He sacrificed not for those who love him, but for those who hate him. Greatest possible being, expressing the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. If God is great, if Allahu Akbar, then he must be the God of the cross and the empty tomb. I have looked in so many religious beliefs, and I can tell you this, none of them, none, have a cross, empty tomb, and a God who's like that. That is the Christian gospel. When... We read those words, and everything I wished was true about my former faith was actually true in the gospel. What I'll tell you is this. There came a time when I realized whatever I would lose was nothing compared to who I would gain, and whatever price I would pay was nothing compared to the price that was paid for me. 
That is the cross. That is the God who is, who is great. We sing that hymn, How Great Thou Art. When I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. But on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart, then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your greatness. I thank you that you're the kind of God and we're reminded through Micah 6a about doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. What is the cross? What is the cross? But a God who, love, who does justice by punishing sin, but loves mercy by taking it on himself and in doing so walks humbly in the form of a servant. What a beauty we have in Scripture. What a beauty we have. And that every word of your, of your, of your, your Scripture points to the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your gifts. We thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your Son. May we serve him. May we express truth to him. May those who might be struggling, when we ask the question, is that you? We ask them, do you want to know this, Lord? I ask, Lord, that those people come forward and they ask to give their lives to you. Make this the day of their decision. Make this the day when they come to embrace the greatest possible love. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve. I thank you, Lord, for the many gifts that we have, for the people who are within the sound of our voice, and for this church, Christ Community Chapel, that actually does what they say and walks what they believe. We thank you, Lord, for these precious gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. What a pleasure, what an honor. God bless you.